Kebu has been showing up for over 50 years. <laughs> Give to Kebu today and you get full access to the Chinook Book app, plus freebies from Laughing Planet, Gluten-Free Gem, Wee Press, and Nosa Familia Coffee. You can contribute right now at kboo.fm slash give or call 503-231-8032. Support KBU where music makes the movement. KBU Community Radio is hiring a development director. This 32-hour-a-week position develops and implements the yearly fundraising plan develops promotional and press materials, and supports the anti-oppression work of KBU. Send a cover letter and resume to Delphine Crescenzo at del at kboo.org or send to KBU Development Tire, 20 Southeast 8th, Portland, Oregon, 97214. Please answer in the cover letter the question, why is KBU important? Deadline to apply is Sunday, November 25th at midnight. More information on the development director position is available at kboo.fm slash development hire 2018. Good morning. It's nine o'clock and time for the radio activist. Today, public poet, publisher, and organizer Christopher Luna talks about building community through art. And he'll be speaking with Suzanne. At 10 o'clock, it's Flashpoints with Dennis Bernstein. And at 11 o'clock, it's Food Show, news, politics, and updates about the field of food. All of these KBU programs are made possible by member support. And if you'd like to become a member, you can go to kboo.fm and click where it says Donate. Thanks in advance for taking care of that. Here comes the radio activist. the radio activists, along with Lisa Levine, my compatriot who is out of town. Today on the Radio Activists, we bring you interviews with two local poets who are using the power of words to create community and change worlds. My first guest is poet, teacher, visual artist, and editor Christopher Luna. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, you do so many things, but let's start with poetry. Um, what made you decide to become a poet? Well, when I was I was in my uh, <clears throat> 20s and sort of drifting, not sure what was uh, going to happen. And uh, I read uh, Allen Ginsberg's collected poems and Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass in the same summer. And um, Allen Ginsberg in his collected poems, which at that time was from 47 to 87, and he was still with us, he was still alive, he had a glossary in the back. He didn't explain things like Richard Nixon, but there were other things that he felt like he wanted to leave some notes for future generations. And he mentioned the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics, in, in, uh, the school he had founded in 74 with Ann Waldman and Diane DePrima and the Tibetan guru Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And I ended up uh, going out there as a student. By the time I was a student there, uh, he had passed on, but his uh, spirit is very much alive there. And he, Ginsburg is the reason that I'm a poet, so I... Uh, it made sense for me to go there, and it was an amazing experience to be there for uh, to get my uh, my MFA. And what is it that um, and I know that Allen Ginsberg um, is a is a real seminal figure in the 20th century, mm -hmm. and I know that a lot of the work that you do is modeled on things that he has done. What in what way do you think um, Ginsberg was also an activist as well as a poet? Well, he decided to throw himself into most of the what people would consider the important social movements of the, you know, mid-century forward, the, uh, <coughs> the anti-Vietnam movement, the anti-nuclear movement, uh, the gay rights movement, um, free speech. Um, he, you know, um, talked about the benefits of um, LSD, psilocybin, and, and marijuana, you know, uh, was very vocal and open about that. And I also think him being a... Uh, 
openly gay man from mid-century forward also sort of paved the way and helped, you know, helped our uh, queer brothers and sisters to, um, he gave them a model of, uh, of a way to be that and with some, you know, um, dignity and grace and also um, he was playful about it. He was, you know, he was, um, to me, his, his writing is extremely important, but how he conducted himself in the world is important and it's because he became sort of world famous very young and he could have just sort of rested on that or decided to, you know, benefit from that in whatever way he might, but he spent most of his life trying to um, help other people and also um, spread the word about poetry. There's this great story about him going into a New York publisher saying, I, you know, basically demanding to be published, but also bringing along the um, manuscripts of people we know now, but were not known then, like Robert Creeley and Denise Levertov, people like that, and saying, these are the people who are doing good work and you need to pay attention to them. And so I try to, I try to sort of um, do everything that I do with that, that same spirit of promoting poetry wherever I find it. And of course, doing that helps um, to bring attention to my own personal work. So there's no, it's sort of a, a, a circular thing that helps everybody. The, you know, there's no downside to um, helping other poets, that, you know, from my perspective. Mm -hmm. So some of the work that you have done um, in Vancouver is you, when did you arrive in Vancouver? Well, um, <clears throat> I arrived in Washington State from New York at the end of 2001 and then in Vancouver in 2003. Uh, I started going to Portland poetry events uh, pretty soon after that, and then I um, I founded the Ghost Town Poetry Open Mic in 2004, November 2004. At that time, no one really knew who I was. They, I didn't have a you know a name or a title or anything like that. But you know, as soon as I got to Portland, I was embraced by the Portland poetry community. I was uh, brought on the air by Walt Curtis. I had places to read my work. My work was supported right away. And then when the thing that happened in Vancouver was there were all these writers there and artists and musicians, but at that time they weren't really talking to each other. It wasn't a community in the sense of people supporting and helping each other out. So when I started this uh, reading and I started it, it didn't have a title at the time and it, all I knew was that it would be all ages and uncensored. I had that slogan. And um, we started at a place called Ice Cream Renaissance and it turned out that it was filling a need. So even though I was sort of uh, unknown at that point or an unknown entity. The first night that I did it in November 2004, uh, we were packed. We had a packed house and it's basically, you know, stayed that way since. And um, occasionally when life gets crazy, my uh, wife, who's also a poet and artist, will ask me if I would ever stop doing Ghost Town Poetry Open Mic. And I said, or if, if people stop coming or if it stopped being fun. But I mean, neither one of those things, it's not showing any signs of slowing down. And it stays alive because we get new people every month as well as some really loyal regulars. We have two people, Jim Martin and Lori Loringer, who they were at the very first reading in 2004 and they have pretty much come to just about every reading since and that's wonderful to have that, um, you know, sort of old guard and then new folks coming in. As long as you keep getting those new people too, it stays fresh and lively. So, What's the connection between writing poetry and creating a community of other poets? Well, I think there's... Um, kind of a false um, sense that um, art is something that happens in solitude. Now, some parts of it happen in solitude, but we're human beings and we need to have engagement with other human beings. And I think what, when someone's really new to writing, there are all kinds of questions they have that are really practical questions that they don't have answers to, like, you know, where are the, where are readings, where are workshops? Um, where, where can I go to learn if they were interested in furthering their education, things like that. And the open mic is such a great forum because it, it attracts both people who are really new to writing and people who have been doing it for a long time. And then there's an exchange of information. So if you are that person who's whatever age you are that is just getting started, um, going to an open mic is a way to find your tribe, find your community, and find that information that can seem really almost impossible to get. Uh, when you're right at the beginning of that process. It can really feel like there are the, all these people on the other side of some kind of imaginary wall having lots of fun without, without you and that you have no way of getting to the other side of that wall. Well, an open mic, a good one, one where the hosts and the people who come to it are community-minded, which we're fortunate to have at Ghost Town, um, all you have to do is walk in the door and you are instantly sort of plugged in to the poetry community if that's what you want. So then I see that as sort of like the baseline 
that's something that would happen at any open mic that was any good at all. But then if you're also interested in affecting, you know, positive social change, then it can happen there too because it's all about people um, expressing themselves. And from the host perspective, from my perspective and Tony's, we're trying to create a safe space in which that can happen. So if you do create a, a safe space, if you hold the space in the correct way, uh, then the things that need to get said um, to create those tiny shifts in consciousness, which could lead to action in real life, um, people feel like they can do that, you know? Um, and I, I feel really proud of that because I really believe in personal freedom and people could have at any point in the process sort of um, taken over in a negative sort of way or turned things in a different direction than they've gone, but people have stayed um, friendly and supportive. And, you know, when someone gets up there, like recently we had someone who had uh, lost his mother not too long ago, and that's what he wanted to read about. He's reading poems about what had happened. And, you know, they get a lot of love from the audience and everybody sort of directs their energy at whoever is up there, whatever it is that they're reading about. And it's so beautiful to see it happen. I don't tell them to do that. I don't tell the ghost town audience to do that. I try to model a way of being a poet in the world, which is what Ginsburg did for me, you know, and then hope that they'll pick up on it. And we've been really lucky. They have picked up on it. And I think it's because people look around the room, they're feeling terrified, they're feeling all these things that people feel before they might share a poem and realize all the other people in the room are sort of feeling the same way. And, uh, and, and that relaxes things a bit. It's always going to be terrifying. But I mean, when they watch one person after another get up there and get so much love and so much good energy, then they start to think, oh, well, I, I have something to say and I want to I want my turn to say it. You know? <laughs> it's interesting that you talk about activism as um, one part of activism as being the creating a context to express yourself and also to say things that you want to say or need to say or perhaps have not said before. Mm -hmm. How does that how does that change um, the world, do you think, or change other people by doing that? Well, sometimes it's just the fellowship of being around like-minded people. Like we had a, a reading that happened just a couple of days after um, the last presidential election. And it, it's not that we, we usually have 20 to 25 people who read on the open mic list plus a featured reader. And it's not that everybody who read that night read, you know, anti-Trump poems or poems about the election or anything like that. There were some who did, but it was more about that people needed a place to go and sort of commiserate with other people and just sort of say, what just happened and what can we do about it? And so to me, that's the part that's important because one of the beautiful things about an open mic is you don't know what people are going to bring or, or what they're going to say. Um, I like the sort of excitement and anarchy of that. Um, and on the other hand, you can kind of count on if something big has happened in our culture that it will be addressed at some point. Someone is going to get up there and talk about what just happened the day or two ago and, and hopefully in a way that um, makes us all at least feel less alone, like there's someone else who feels similarly. And that's how we felt after that. You know, that it was probably like November 8th or 9th or something like that, but, you know, in 2016. Yeah, so... <laughs> I, yeah. I don't. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. It was just the first example I thought of of that sort of thing. Is, yeah. yeah, and and it's also it's really scary to get up there, even if you know that the audience is sort of like friends. Um, you're really making yourself vulnerable every time you get up there. So when I talk about the modeling, that's the modeling I'm I'm talking about is sort of. Uh, paying close focused attention to whoever is up there and really, um, you know, almost like seeing the space around the mic as a, as a sacred space. And so there's a certain amount of um, reverence around the whole event. I mean, we're having fun. We're having a good time and showing people who might not know that poetry can be fun as well as meaningful. But we're also taking care of those people while they're up mm -hmm. there because they need our care. I mean, they're really, even people like me who are hams and have been doing for a long time and really like uh, the attention and like being at the mic, um, it's still frightening. I mean, it's mm -hmm. still something that where you're taking a risk is, you know, every time you open your mouth up there, I mean, anything could happen. Yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> you said um, a space to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. That's that's really interesting. And I don't think we have very many spaces like that. Yeah. And it's um, one thing to be vulnerable at home with your notebook, uh, with no one else watching or, or reading it. It's another thing to do that in front of 50 people. I mean, that's really 
for most of us, I think that's a challenging thing to do. So we try to make it as good an experience as possible, knowing that we can't control everything about the experience, but that's where the modeling comes in. If we model a certain way of behaving toward whoever is up there, no matter what they're doing up there, uh, then people do sort of pick up on that. And that's what I've noticed over the years. I mean, I waited for years for revenge poems or for people to sort of hijack the mic so that they could just be nasty or mean and it hasn't happened and knock on the closest wood because um, I thought it might happen because that's what humans do mm-hmm. you know but I mean we're really blessed that um, yeah people have kept it uh, friendly and kept it and it doesn't mean people are not talking about painful things up there of course they are but in terms of how they treat each other they treated each other so well and there was a certain point where I made a decision to put on the flyers because I make these flyers for the event um, uh, that we were LGBTQ plus friendly and you know one or two people and they were usually straight white people asked me why I did that and I there was a really simple reason why I did that I it was we had the community had proven to me that it was and we had had many trans readers who came and some featured readers you know as well and they were treated so well and had such a good experience I didn't even hear people saying things out of earshot that were unkind that I would I wanted the people in the community who might be wondering, can I go to this thing and feel okay to be there, to know that it was going to be okay. And I could only put that on there because we had been doing whatever, 10 plus years of it, of the event, and and nothing sort of, nothing like that had happened. And so I'm super proud of Vancouver and the sort of larger metropolitan area for that because, again, I don't control what people do when they get there. I don't believe in that. I don't like telling people what to do. We don't have rules or time limits. We just let it be whatever it's going to be, and it stretches out into the night. But that way that they have, yeah, taken care of each other is just beautiful. It sort of proved something to me that I knew, and the only way to find out if those things are true is to, is to test it, is to allow the people to the freedom so that they can sort of take responsibility for it. And they did. They still, every time, they do it. They have to participate in that, or else it doesn't happen, or else it would be kind of, I don't know, a mess. It's not a mess. It's sort of like a beautiful flower that unfolds every month, in a, and a different flower every time. You don't. It's different, but it's always sort of... Uh, positive you know so so you do a lot of work in connecting different parts of of community of local communities together as the first uh, poet laureate of clark county Mm -hmm. you started a program of poets in the schools yeah um and it's also interesting because you are the the poet laureate of the niche wine bar i've never heard of (laughs) a poet laureate being named for a business so it's really interesting both connecting um you know the schools but also connecting businesses together why is it important to do that to kind of go to spread out poetry in different um, communities well that's a big question but my sort of slice of it uh looking at through the sort of poetry framework is that you know we live in a culture where poetry isn't necessarily taught in the correct way. That's why there are so many of us poets who have a passion for it who go into schools and things like that. It's sort of um, either taught in a limited way or people are um, come out of school uh, yeah, with sort of thinking that it's stuffy or that it's not for them or that it's beyond their um, ability to understand, you know. And it can be that, but it's also so many other things as well. So one of the things that happens if you do love it if, and it, it's your passion and you decide to share that with other people is you have an opportunity there to do a little bit of damage control and a little bit of I kind of feel like it's one of the things about Ghost Town too is if I can get someone in the door to experience what we experience every month you know no like th- three hour speech that I might make about how great poetry is is going to do it any better than that they just have to sort of see what happens when they or if I can get them into the classroom for a workshop and we start to share other people's poems and they you know, can sort of see how that changes them, how that makes them feel different. Um, yeah, it's a, there's, a, there's a serious ripple effect from, be, from doing these kinds of things. And Leah Jackson is the owner of Niche Wine Bar and also Angst Gallery, which is where we do the Ghost Town Poetry Open Mic. And basically, when I was also new, unknown to the area, uh, she ran a gallery called the Sixth Street Gallery that's not there anymore. And that was around 2005. 
and she basically supported me from the moment that she met me and gave me a place to do poetry events, bring poetry events, out-of-town people also, and and that's how I ended up being the poet laureate of her two businesses, of Nisha and Angst, before uh, the county made its decision. And to me, that will always mean something really special because of who Leah is to that downtown Vancouver arts community. I mean, she's one of those kinds of people who does so much for the people there uh, that um, they don't even realize how much they owe her. I do. And so I tell people every opportunity I get, like like on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> Great. If you're just joining us, this is The Radio Activist, and I'm Suzanne Legrand, and today I'm talking to poet organizer and publisher Christopher Luna. Uh, he was Clark County's first poet laureate in 2013 to 2017. Um, why, and uh, just a, a question, why do you think it's important for um, different parts of, of the community to be involved in something like poetry or poetry readings? Um, like your emphasis is really on involving local um, mm-hmm. groups. Mm-hmm. And I, I, uh, as a publisher, one of the things you also do is publish local poets, um, those from Clark County. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of emphasis on kind of looking around and seeing who in your local community you can connect to. Why is that an important thing to be doing? Well, one of the things that poetry does is encourage empathy. And one of the things that all humans feel is uh, sort of alone in the world. So... Um, Public and poetry is also an oral tradition. So you come to this event where you're uh, encouraged to, um, you know, speak your mind, say the things that are on your mind and in your heart, and you do it, and and nothing sort of terrible happens as a result. And then you also have the opportunity to meet other people from the community, not just poets who are doing things and find out what's going on in the community. And that sort of it sort of ripples out from there. So I think that it all starts with that idea of us feeling alone, us feeling like maybe nobody understands us. And then, um, you know, poetry really just it produces a more sort of empathetic populace. And if you believe that it has that ability to do that and also to heal, and I think it does, then you sort of want to do more of it. You want to participate in, in helping other people that way. And I'm a very empirical sort of person. I would not uh, make these bold statements if I hadn't um, experienced it. You know, but you can watch. I, I say this because it sounds kind of mean, but I have watched an audiences with a person reading a poem that was not necessarily a very good poem about uh, trauma, some kind of personal trauma, be moved and changed in in you know just as powerfully as might be with the sort of a better poet, a better writer. And that's you know was an example that sort of taught me how, how powerful just sort of sharing these things in public can be. You know. Um, yeah, and then it might occur to somebody who has changed in that way uh, to uh, get involved with the local organization, you know. Um, yeah, and so when we started Printed Matter Vancouver, the small uh, press and editing service that my wife Tony and I have, um, it made a lot of sense to us to to focus on Clark County, to focus on Southwest Washington, because that's where we had been building community all this time. Maybe at some point in the future, we'll publish people from outside of that area, but there are plenty of great writers there we could just do books of Clark County poets for a long time I think mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. so. there's another way in which um, you seek connections which I think is really interesting in that you work in different art forms you are a visual artist and um, with your wife you started um, poetry on buses is that correct? Yeah, we worked together. It was while I was Poet Laureate. We worked together with um, Arts of Clark County and CTRAN, which is the Vancouver bus system. Uh, And now I think they're on season seven or maybe eight. I mean, I thought we might get one, but it was so popular that it's still happening. And what we do is alternate every six months. Uh, There's a contest for adults, 10 adults from Clark County. And then the other half of the year is um, students. And so far, it's been students and children from the Poets in the Schools program, although that may change at some point. It may, you know, we may open it up to more than just people from that that small program. But um, it's been so great. Um, And... You know, it's not the first, we're not the first people that ever put poems on the bus, but, you know, I I took buses for a long time and took public transportation when I was living in New York, and 
I know that a lot of people that are riding the buses are people that some people in our society want to sort of forget or render invisible in one way or another. They're going back and forth to jobs. They're using it to get to their job. They're going to court or social services or things like that or jail. And so they're, in, in some ways, you know, people that some would like to erase. And I love the idea of having those people who really rely on the buses to get to where they need to go, being able to look up and see this you know, beautiful, they have to be short poems because you have to be able to read them from the other side of the bus, something to brighten their day. And when we were judging the contest, that was really the only sort of uh, guideline, internal guideline that we had was that we didn't want someone to look up and see something that would bring them down. You know, those poems have their place in the world. Uh, we didn't think that the bus was the place where we wanted to put them. You know, we wanted to make sure that it would be something that would, could provoke thought, but it would basically make you feel better, make you feel good to see it, you know, so. Uh, yeah, it's great. It's a great way to um, make poetry even more public than it would be. I, I like all public art. Public art is really positive for the community. And it doesn't mean people are going to like all of it. Nobody likes all art anyway. But just having it there and accessible and available. And like, for example, in Vancouver, there's a lot of, uh, you know, outdoor sculpture and, and murals and things like that. So and more than there were when I first arrived. So that's a wonderful thing to have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you also um, collaborate with musicians. Mm -hmm. um, Quite a bit. Why? Like, what is the connection? So you, on one hand, you do visual arts and poetry, and then you also do music and poetry. What, what connection do you see there? Why? Well, I love music, and, my, and poetry and music uh, are composed with, ver with a lot of the same kinds of things in mind. It's really a kind of ear training. And I've learned so much from the musicians that I've known and the musicians I've listened to. So when I had the opportunity to collaborate with them, it's really helped me to sort of find the rhythm in my own work, you know, sort of find uh, what was already there. And, um, you know, I've, I've, it also, usually when you're up there as a poet, you're up there by yourself uh, with a captive audience. When you work with musicians, you even if you work with just one musician, it's a, suddenly a dialogue. You have to there's more, more space for you to be silent than you might feel if you're just up there by yourself and you have to um, fit in with what they're doing. You can't just be over here doing something that is uh, not related to what they're doing. It has to, it has to work. Um, so I've learned so much from them and so much of what I write um, is influenced by the different music that I listen to that it just makes sense. I mean, there's never been a time in the history of poetry that it was not connected to music in some way. So it comes very natural. And then what I've, how I've benefited personally from working with these musicians is I've had a lot of fun and I really think that my work has gotten better as a result of what I've learned from them. And uh, it's my favorite way to present it is with some kind of musical accompaniment. It just makes the whole thing, it, it lifts the whole thing up in this great way. So you have recently published a book of poems. Yeah, it'll be um, coming out next month, actually. It's, oh. it's just about to be released. Yeah. Great. Would you um, read us a poem from this new collection? And what is it called? The, the collection is called Message from the Vessel in a Dream. Uh, that has to do with a, um, a dream that I had in which the uh, musician, uh, Carlos Santana, who's the vessel, he's the vessel through which this beauty comes, gave me a couple of lines of poetry. And that never happened in my life. Um, so I dedicated the book to him. So uh, maybe that's what I should read to you now that I've said all that. I just have to figure out where it is. Okay, I'm not sure which page that's on. So I'm going to go with the poem that opens the book. And um, it's kind of a manifesto. It's one of those kinds of poems that percolated inside me for many years and then came bursting out fully formed. It's called All Beauty is at Continuous War with God. And that title comes from Jack Spicer. You've got it all wrong. Whatever it is cannot be labeled, cornered, captured, or caged. Its power comes from the mystery, its beauty the direct result of its ineffability. Not knowing is the secret. Not needing to know is the key. Realizing that the answer is unattainable and ought to remain that way. You muck things up when you try to place it in a box, erect palaces, build altars, put it on display for all the world to see, the glory in captivity. Not knowing can be painful, but it feels more honest. Rather be in the dark with hope than standing in the light, nothing left to learn. My disappointment is boundless. Your pretty words would be easier to swallow were they not so often followed by the gleeful slitting of your brother's throat. What, I ask you, 
has any of this to do with love. Thank you. I'm wondering, do you think that poetry gives us a perspective on what's going on in the world that we can't get from, say, listening to the news? Yeah, because I think that poets and artists are people who look at all the same things that everyone else does. We're not superior in any way, but we are inclined to look at those things more closely uh, to spend more time engaging in thinking about them and, and sort of struggling with them. And then um, the people who might uh, read or listen to our poetry sort of benefit from whatever we might. You know, one of the things creative people do is sort of connect the dots or find connections. And that's a very human need to find those connections. So that's a serv- that can be a service. That could be a service that you provide for those people that might listen to it or read it. And uh, I very much believe in that. It happens for me as a reader of other people's stuff. And I feel I've seen it happen in terms of some of the feedback I've gotten on some of my work. I, I think it's a real thing that happens. You know, I've been talking to poet, organizer, teacher, and publisher Christopher Luna. If people find, want to find out more about your work, um, where can they go? Oh, Printed Matter Vancouver, uh, dot com is uh, one place to find out about a lot of the things that we're doing and I I, I um, edit a, a newsletter that's called The Work and uh, it's to help people find poetry events in Portland and Vancouver and if people uh, want to be on that list they can just email me at uh, printedmattervancouver at gmail.com to be put on that list Great, thank you so much for joining us today on The Radio Activists you Thanks are listening to KBOO Portland. I'm Suzanne Legrand. And next up on The Radio Activist, I will be talking to word magician Laurel Erica. Stay tuned. the radio activist on KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM. Today we are featuring local activists and artists who are making change in our communities. I'm Suzanne Legrand, and today on the radio activist, my guest is educational entertainer and word magician, Laurel Erica. Welcome. Thank you. So you are the creator of what you call word magic. Yes. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that is and how you came to create it. Thank you. <clears throat> so I started playing with words as a very little girl and I discovered very interesting things about them. I noticed that the word level was a level word 
L-E-V-E-L, and that the V is like an, a wedge. I later came to think of it as the tip of the arrow of spirit into matter. <clears throat> so sorry. So level is a palindrome, and I saw that parallel had three parallel lines, and opposite begins with opposites. And I just kept digging and delving and exploring. And when I was a, a little girl in school and learned of the explorers, and I really wanted to be an explorer and was enormously disappointed that all the land masses had already been discovered. So now I joke that they left the consonants for me. <laughs> so I have just found a code in the alphabet, a hidden philosophy in puns and the symbols of the alphabet, and <clears throat> leading to the understanding that language is actually software, that programs are thinking, and that it's filled with cultural biases that are akin to computer viruses. From an antiquated and manipulated vision of reality promulgated by the church as an instrument of mind control at a time when people had to surrender their minds if they wanted to keep their heads about them quite literally. So I advocate a conscious, creative, collective upgrade of the English language so that it can convey a higher frequency of consciousness in our communications and inspire a greater frequency of kindness in our interactions. Wow, that is a lot. <laughs> so um, let's let's see if we could break some of that down a little bit. So um, you said that the English language is a kind of software. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, I'll do it this time in verse, and I'll give you some examples, which are favorite ones of mine. The fact that praying sounds so savage, yet it also sounds divine. Or how about the way the prophet has become our bottom line? Now add worship or worship, parish or perish, and it's easy to see why the world's so nightmarish. So that's one example. I can give you many more. Um, <clears throat> I, several years ago, I got a phone call from a woman who said, your YouTube video, The Secret Spells of the English Language, has 55,000 views. <clears throat> and I said, so sorry my funny voice, but... <clears throat> I said to her that on my YouTube channel it had, at the time, a little over 90,000 views, and she said, no, I mean since I put it on the Facebook page of Collective Evolution three hours ago. So that is my most popular YouTube. It has over two million views, and for those who haven't yet found it, I'll share it. <clears throat> It goes this way. I call it our premier life sentence. And it goes, we awake each morning and go off during the weekdays to share our living, at uh, to earn our living at various jobs and undertakings until we come to the weekend. And I explain that what I do is a translation of the English language. And I spell it T-R-A-N-C-E with the idea that words cast spells that put us in a trance. So <clears throat> everyone agrees that the life sentence I just outlined is the natural or normal way of things. However, more people die of heart failure between 6 and 10 a.m. Monday morning than any other time of the week. <clears throat> When you translate that life sentence, you remember that a wake is a funeral party for the dead, and that mourning is the state we're in when we attend a wake, and that we would have to be <coughs> staggering around through life in a weekdays um, to earn the living since urns are vases for the ashes of the dead. We call our jobs undertakings as we race to meet deadlines. Job itself is a Hebrew word for persecuted, as in Job, and what we get at the end of this perverse bargain with life is weekend. And <clears throat> I beg your pardon for doing this to your ear. My voice is rather foggy at the moment. 
In any case, our most prevalent greeting to each other is hello, and if you reverse the syllables, we have oh hell. And I once asked a group of people, what can we do about this word? And someone suggested, how about hallow? And to hallow is to make holy and sacred. So if we were to say to each other, hallow, rather than hello, we're essentially saying namaste. We are greeting the divine within each other. And that's what I think we can do for all of such words that unbeknownst to most of us in ordinary words, there is this whole vision of a very divided universe of fallen humanity, the misery of life and the inferiority of women. And now is the time to do something about it. Wow. So it's really interesting because you are talking about how um, language carries a unconscious worldview and a, one that you suggest needs to be upgraded. It's time to upgrade it. Yes. So how is it that we upgrade our language? What, what does that involve? Well, I have <clears throat> an anthem called Taking Command of the English Language. And rather than recite it all, I just recommend people go to YouTube and look up Taking Command of the English Language and my name, Laurel Erica, and you'll hear it. I can give you, <clears throat> pardon me, a shorter version that goes, if we elect collectively to upgrade the English language through our linguistic creativity and naturally occurring verbal eccentricities, then ultimately even clatter from our idle chatter, prattle patter, blabber blather and palaver as we jabber gab in Babylon, will turn our glowing terms from verbal vapor, either hanging in the air or trapped on paper, into tiny bits of shiny matter as we gather, chat, and natter on, and with new skill, at trilling, thrilling statements <clears throat> that instill fulfilling imagery of higher possibilities, will finally still the quiet riot of the wild child's manic panic through the mind so we can flip the switch, enlightening every circuit of our consciousness through the electric surge of verbiage that encourages superb and selfless services to spread from soul to soul around the globe by what is said in all the light years up ahead. And then, from the islands of silence between all that's spoken, we will listen as doors to the heartland spring open. So that's a poetic vision, <clears throat> different but similar to taking command of the English language. What that means in a practical sense is to open up with the intention of receiving divine ideas, new words, new symbols, new sounds that can um, help connect with our inner beauty, be a catalyst for our own self-honoring of the divinity that we embody. The word infinite describes where it lives. The infinite is infinite. We each have that capacity <clears throat> to connect with infinite love intelligence. And when we open with the intention of coming up with new words and metaphors, and I use in taking command of the English language, I give the example of random acts of kindness and how that one epiphany that one vision that occurred to one person helped change behavior all around the world for a period of time. And if we start um, using that divine channel that we have, opening it up, becoming better at listening, and then I'm inviting people to send in their ideas to my website, wordmagicglobal.com. And ultimately, when we have sufficient people <clears throat> gathered together, we can have a literary lotto where people send in their divine ideas with a dollar. Those that our little team enjoys the most, we can put on t-shirts and bumper stickers and, and honor the prophet who brought it through and also profit the profit through the sales of paraphernalia that inspires the best in us all. 
Wow, wonderful. So this is The Radio Activist. I am Suzanne Legrand, and I am talking to word magician Laurel Erica, who is indeed doing some magic with her um, use of words and demonstrating to us how word magic works. What strikes me is that your use of language is very playful and that you are paying attention not only to what words mean, but also how they sound and the delight in those sounds. Does that have anything to do with changing consciousness? Well, um, I have a Patreon site for people who would like to become a patron of my art so I can bring through and produce more of the treasure trove of word magic that I've already created and am continuing to create. And my tagline on that website is turning the tide on the global sea of consciousness. And I spell that S-E-E, because like the S-E-A, our vision is also the womb of creation. And we are projecting light through our minds. And when our minds have the film of the real (laughs) that has a a perspective on reality that is not real, that is a fabrication, then we are continuing collectively to project a vision of reality that damns us all. I was once um, driving along, and I had this poem that came through to me, and this stanza, which is, If healing from a mindfuck helps correct the English vision, then... By God, will I be grateful for my pre-life soul decision to divine a life assignment that could lead to my confinement on a planet that's confounded by a language that could damn it. We are continually damning ourselves by the way that we speak, not only in the inflammatory conversation, but also in words that undermine our own sense of our own value and our own connection to the divine. What would be a, what would be a word that undermines our, our sense of our own value? Mm. Let me think about that for a moment because I've been most recently working on, um, working on obscure words that do that, like the word quiddity, which likely nobody knows, means the essence of something, and it, the other definition is a trifling nothing. Oh, fascinating. And then the word nonpareil, which most people know as a candy, also means the whatness of something. So it reduces our, our whatness, that which makes each one of us y- unique, it reduces it to sugary fluff. <laughs> Those words are not known, but the word avatar is. And the understanding of avatar that comes from the Hindu religion, from Sanskrit, is of divinity embodied in an entity to assist humanity. So there are like Indian saints who travel around the world and around the country to bless people and remind us all of our own essential divinity. Now, however, there is the word avatar as a cartoon projection of the player in a video game. So it turns the whole world upside down. It's a world within a world a dream within a dream, but a, but a forgetfulness of the essence of who we are as the infinite in finite form. Wow. So can anybody do word magic? Everyone can do word magic. And, and the, I'm so glad you asked that question because someone who attended one of my events then came up with, with a different understanding of gratefulness as great fullness, 
when we appreciate and like money expand through appreciation, we can experience a great fullness of being. And what I find in that state of great fullness that is that love and appreciation and beauty which is synonymous with truth, and the exquisite feelings that they engender within us, that is our natural state of being. So I believe that as we hold an intention to bring through new words and metaphors and phrases of the caliber of random acts of kindness, that we create more gratefulness for ourselves as well as for others, <clears throat> for others to be catalysts for the recollection of who it is we truly are. Wow. <laughs> um, could you talk a little bit about the work that you have done and um, because it sounds like it's it's um, you do translations of the English language but you've also worked at the level of letters themselves um, so the the meaning of the the sounds themselves could you talk a little bit about that I yes I have played a bit with the alphabet I have a poem on the letter S called Esoterica by Laurel Erica, which I have not yet put out into the world because it really does need animation, and I need animators. And so, um, <clears throat> but that is about the letter S as a symbol of transformation. It turns he to she. It turns um, words to swords. It does all sorts of magical things of that sort. And just playing with the letter led me on a, an entire journey that's really wonderful. So may I <laughs> invite people to, um, to consider contributing on Patreon so I can make that available. It's about a 10-minute poem, and I would have to trust my memory to be able to share it right now, but I can switch in the moment to the letter I, and I point out that just as we have two eyes on our faces, there are also two eyes in the alphabet. There's the lowercase i, where the mind and the body are separate, and then there's our capital potential, where the human stands, if you have that straight vertical line, as a bridge between heaven and earth. And I point out that in order to fulfill our capital potential, we sometimes have to turn our whole lives upside down to stand for truth and beauty and to stand for nothing less. And at that point, we become a capital uh, we become an exclamation point. <clears throat> so I can give you a few lines of that one. Okay, it starts out. <clears throat> Sometimes I feel a little like a little I. Insignificant, alone, fragmented, and shy. Mind detached from body, diminished in size, the epitome, epitome of self-compromise. Other times I tower with the courage, strength, and power of the capital I that reaches the sky and connects it with earth. Then my sense of self-worth is completely removed from the impulse to prove who I am by what I have, think, say, know, or do. When I'm there, I'm aware that the I that I am is the all-seeing I, and I identify with the source and the course and the force of creation without hesitation, for I know there's no separation between me and my deity. Ah, but when the resistance renews its insistence. My peace falls to pieces. All certainty ceases as ego increases its volume by 10, and I'm suddenly feeling awfully little again. So that's an excerpt from a poem that's in my book called Word Magic, Wordplay That Puts a New Spin on the World. If people want to find out about your work and um, maybe get some of these um, books, 
Where could they go? To my website, wordmagicglobal.com. I'm posting, right now I'm writing a series of essays on obscure words, and those I'm posting on patreon.com wordmagicglobal. I'm also offering a service of creating portraits in verse for someone you love and wish to honor or someone you wish to roast. Um, You and I can have a a conversation about this person, and I will create a portrait in verse. I'm also writing personalized incantations for people who want to remember who they are as all the winds and storms of change are blowing all around us to call yourself back from that place of fear and doubt to stand your ground and be the capital I that you have the potential to be and that we all came and are gathering to be and to hold our ground in the midst of the transformation that's happening on the planet. So I do personalized incantations. And if you're ready to tell your story, to write your memoir, I, I conduct breakthrough conversations and can support you in the whole writing process, even if it's to interview you, to take down your words and to bring them from spoken to written English and edit them for you and we go back and forth until you finally get your story out of the ethers and onto the page where it can benefit many people. And that, for those, that service, excuse me, you would go to laurelerica.com. And L-A-U-R-E-L-A-I-R-I-C-A dot com. So a whole array of services and um, the desire to be a greater blessing on the planet and assist all of us to fulfill our entelechy, which is a word few people know. We know about actualizing potential, but don't generally know that there's a word for actualized potential and for the impulse to self-actualize, and that word is entelechy, E-N-T-E-L-E-C-H-Y. And what is the end? So um, one last thing, you um, are is, seem to be very inspired also by nature. Mm. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the connection between language and the natural world. Yes. Um, how would I? Let me think about that for a moment. I have... Well, so much of what I know about words, um, I downloaded in natural settings. This is the channel I'm tuned to, and the and the woods give me words. And there's a wonderful word I recently found, nemophilist, one who enjoys being in the forests and is a haunter of the woods, and that's spelled N-E-M-O. P-H-I-L-I-S-T, and I put A Walk in the Woods, that essay, on my Patreon page. It's one of the posts there, so you might enjoy it. So my vision is for all of us collectively, I'll just maybe close with this, I think of how exquisite it will be when we endeavor together to create an enchanting living language of supernatural poetry that scintillates so sensually that everything around us begins to vibrate sympathetically. So just as bird songs, cricket choirs, and other naturally voices evoke a wholesome rhythm and nourishing harmonic for the planet, our gentle elemental language, every time it is spoke, will resonate symphonically with earth and all upon it. So this is a very lengthy poem. I've excerpted it in my book, Word Magic, Wordplay That Puts a New Spin on the World. And when I was writing it, I couldn't stop. It's about three pages long, and I felt like I was gilding the lily. Then years later, someone gave me a book called The Language of the Birds, which is a mythic green language that was the open sesame language for human nature intercommunication. And... So I found that what I had written is actually in ancient texts, not verbatim, but the vision of it, and that we can do that today and become so harmonious with nature that we replenish its capacity to sustain us. 
Thank you so much. I have been talking to Laurel Erica, word magician and creator of Word Magic Global, uh, today on The Radio Activist on KBOO Portland. I'm Suzanne Legrand, and next week on the show, we are going to interview a group called Nasty Women Get Stuff Done. Among other things, they've created um, those lawn signs that we've seen around town um, that you might have seen. In America, we believe. It's going to be a great show. Stay tuned. KBU Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor Support Lens, a thanks gathering on Wednesday, November 21st at 6 p.m. at Eco PDX in Portland. A thanks gathering is an evening to celebrate those that volunteer their time in our communities. The celebration features singer-songwriter Big Water. The event will also gather items for houseless folks, including waterproof outerwear, men's jeans, hats and gloves, and more. Again, that's a thanks gathering on Wednesday, November 21st at 6 p.m. at Eco PDX, 2289 North Interstate Avenue in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. KBOO Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor the Clinton Street Resistance Series at the Clinton Street Theater in Portland. Monday, November 26th at 7 p.m. will be Conan the Barbarian, playing as a benefit for Girls Build. Conan the Barbarian is a fantasy story of the sword and sorcery hero. As the sole survivor of the childhood massacre, Conan is released from slavery and taught the ancient arts of fighting. Conan then fights, rescues, and entertains for the next two hours. Again, that's Conan the Barbarian playing Monday, November 26th at the Clinton Street Theater, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Hey, thanks for tuning in to KBOO today. It's 10.01. Stay tuned for Flashpoints, and then don't forget, at 11, it's the food show. All coming your way on KBOO Portland.